0: This is the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, episode 119. You're listening to the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast, the number one resource for running a profitable home recording studio. Now your hosts, Brian Hood
1: and Chris Graham. Welcome to another episode of the Six Figure Home Studio Podcast. I'm your lonely co-host, Chris Graham. Brian Hood is in Thailand with his lovely wife gallivanting around the world, having lots of fun. And I'm hanging out here in Westerville, Ohio with one of my my homeboys, one of my, one of my best buds, Mr. John Rubin, who is going to tell us... His story is insane. So I'm going to just really briefly tell you why you should listen to this episode because John has a lot of nuggets of wisdom for us to process here. John, at one point, what, 15, 20 years ago, was like, hey, I'm going to make Christian rap songs. And then the whole world was like, yeah! You're the best Christian rapper ever! And you sold a humongous amount of records. And then at some point, you started producing artists. That also went well. And then at one point, you moved out to LA to run a company called Maker with your brother. And Maker is essentially like a label for YouTubers.
2: Well, Maker was a multi-channel network. There was more to that than, you know... I guess what I, that term always can mean, different things depending on who you ask. But really, what it, I think it, at its core, what was fascinating about that was it was a digital studio back when nobody was talking like that. So, kind of the end of the aughts into the 2000s and 10s, you know, even before, you know, I'd say before Maker, there was a whole community and culture around content creators and it was extremely exciting because this new platform called YouTube enabled people to be able to create something, put it out there into the world and get it out to people without necessarily having to have someone say, yes, you can put that out. Yeah, they just uh, empowered a whole, a bunch of independent, really creative uh, content creators, you know, to, to be able to do what they do. And so I was a part of that, kind of that whole culture and community when it was, first taking shape. And so that's, you can call it that, but I really, what was fascinating about it was the digital studio component and the collaborative nature in which a bunch of different creators were coming together yeah. in a time when nobody had done anything like that.
1: Right. Cause and, it just hadn't been possible before. And there's a couple things I think are really interesting about that story. One is that you were working with a ton of artists who were getting a ridiculous amount of exposure. Like the viral thing was happening with YouTube videos were going viral, and I would imagine, I want to hear way more about this, you would work on a project with people, you would be managing people, you know, the whole nine yards, and then you guys would publish it, and then the views and the comments instantaneously, you'd have a feedback loop instantly, which is so interesting to me because you put out a record, and then like you just kind of wait to hear back what people thought about it. With this, you guys had an instant feedback loop, and what makes this so interesting, guys, is you had to navigate being gritty to build this company, and you had to navigate a ridiculous amount of stress because let's kind of skip to the end of the story and we'll come back to this. What eventually happened with Maker?
2: Well, the company sold so I guess that's uh <laughs> it,
1: it sold for do you want to tell us that number uh, you could look it up let's say uh, okay. had
2: yeah, you could you could you could get the
1: actual number five hundred million dollars. I guess you guys are like, oh, that's why Chris brought him on. He's going to know a lot of stuff that we don't know. So my thing here is, and we were talking about this just a moment ago, I got stress in my life. You know, I got projects I'm working on that I, you know, struggle with and figure I have to navigate like, oh, I'm taking this too seriously or, oh, this thing is freaking me out or oh, yeah. I'm stressed about it. It's encouraging for me to like pause sometimes and be like, well, it's not as complicated as what John had to do.
2: Well, you <laughs> <laughs> see, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's true. I can't verify that for you because I think anytime you're trying to set up shop and build something, I mean, yeah. I can tell you some of the hardest things I've had to do are being putting out this record. I just put out a new record, which isn't nearly as interesting as everything else you probably
1: want to talk no, about. but, but you, no, well, we're going to promote the heck out of it on this podcast though. So the truth of the matter is putting
2: that out on your own by yourself without a team to support that is, you know, without a lot of collaboration because it's just this small independent project and there's not, you know, yeah there's no resources to really put towards it. That's been every bit, I mean, that's a very hard, difficult process. So to be building a podcast- As you also know. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really, it's all kind of relative to where you're at. And I think it's all kind of, I mean, I was a part of a bigger team. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. like With Maker, I was one of many who were actively working to build this company And I had a cool little role, you know, carved out that I was able to do. And it was really fun and exciting. And to be a part of just being a part of that whole scene at the forefront of it is one of those things where I feel like I'll be able to look back. You know, I can start to look back now, but even 10 years from now, I'll be able to look back and be like, oh, yeah, that was kind of the origins of this whole movement. We now know the democratization of content where the world was going with, you know socialized video, socialized content, or however you want to call it. But so it was really exciting. And there was a team of people to support that. And you know, when you're kind of in the middle of it, your head's down and you're just working nonstop. And it was really kind of thrilling. It was kind of a a really, it was a whirlwind. So I think your stress right now is like, your podcast is you. So the pressure (laughs) is on you. And I think I probably felt a, a similar comparison would be me being an artist and being like, if I put this out, okay, it's doing well. But how long will it do well? How do I keep it doing well? Yeah, but, you know, I people were really interested in that song, but are they interested in you know any anything else I have to say? And so, I think building a music career might be more similar to you building your brand, your podcast, in that in that mm. regard. But if it makes you feel better, yeah, your life isn't nearly as stressful <laughs> as mine. No pressure, but the truth of the matter is is the pressure's on you, man. yeah, you've got a mildly successful podcast right now, and you want to keep building it, yeah, and you're feeling the weight of how do I keep people interested? yeah, man, and, and you have to huh. sit there and think about it nonstop and I'm just glad I'm not doing that right now. I'm just putting out little rap records, and if people like it, cool if they don't.
1: That's awesome, I mean, I'm
2: bummed. I mean, I want them to like it, Yeah, you actually have something that's kind of got some momentum behind it and you want to keep that. And that, dude, I mean, that's what every, I mean, people feel the weight of this all the time, you know, in in media and entertainment and whether you're an artist or you're creating a podcast or you have a, you know, if you're a creator putting up a show online, you know, and you, how do you keep people engaged and how do you keep the content flowing? And, you know, then you can start to really psych yourself out. Why did somebody like that?
1: What did I do? Yeah. Well, how can I repeat that? But if yeah. I repeat that, then I can never recreate that moment. It's a strange thing, man. I'm kind of a, a nerd in that one of my favorite things is presidential biographies. Yeah. So I've read I said yeah, like I knew that. I didn't know that. <laughs> well that's fun fact. I love presidential biographies. They're fascinating. A biography is great because you can read a whole book. They're usually really, really long, but it's like you get the whole picture of someone's life. It's like, oh uh, from you know, their ancestors on up to their death. So a biography is usually sad because the hero dies at the end, like every time. (laughs) But it's fun for me to read these books because it's like, man, Abraham Lincoln sure had it rougher than I do. Like, oh man, he has so much stress. And it's encouraging me to be like, calm down, Chris. There's, you're taking this too seriously. And I look back at like every stage of my life and I'm like, oh, uh, when I first got married, it's like, oh man, this is, this is intense. This is kind of stressful. And then we had a kid. And it's like, oh, that was easy. This is stressful. Oh, yeah. And we had another kid. Like, oh, oh, my gosh. That was so easy. No, this is, oh, me I mean, the third kid. And, like, so <laughs> your story with Maker is in that sort of same realm of, like, yeah, but John, like, <laughs> it was intense. And, and so I want to start at the beginning of your story. But, like, outside looking in, intensity with Makers, I remember I mastered a record for Maker years ago. I think it was Tessa Violet's record. super great record it did pretty well like it charted and i remember somebody at maker sent me a contract after the fact and i was like reading through the contract and it was like an awkward moment in our relationship because i had to be like john i i can't sign this because it says if i die in the middle of mastering this record that my family will be responsible for mastering this record I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." <laughs> I, I I don't uh, I don't recall. Yeah, no, it wasn't you. It was somebody it was somebody else on the team. But it was definitely this picture for me of like, "Oh, dang. They got some some things that are happening over there like this is this is very intense." So I don't mean that as like a, that obviously not a slight on you. It was just like my picture looking in of like, "Oh, this is how the big boys play." Are like, you saying
2: that Allison doesn't know how to master records? Not yet. <laughs> We're working on
1: it. I mean, you could scale your business. I could. You, if I could just. If like, only your wife could just master records. Well, my children hypothetically have better frequency response in their ears than I you do. You know what's
2: funny is I can actually see you trying to train your kids to master <laughs> albums and your whole family locked into this sort of like, you just kind of in a perpetual state
1: of like, yeah. Like, At ChrisGramMastering.com, we system, don't mess with The system old is ears. super
2: efficient. They master. I keep a portion of it. Another portion of it goes to their college fund. It's a great system. Yeah,
1: They're hearing. (laughs) Very logical. They can hear it (laughs) for like 25,000 hertz. Okay. They know what they're doing. They're so much better. But it's actually kind of funny. My, My kids are more sensitive than I am in a lot of ways. Like they pass judgment on a song. They're so picky. They like almost no music. But they love like a very small assortment of artists. It's amazing. Like I'll show them a project I worked on and they'll be like, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down. And it's, it's a blast. So it's like, if I get a record that my kids like, that's, that's the most fun thing. But let's kind of start at the beginning. Like, let's tell your whole story yeah. and then let's work up to maker and what your life looks like now. And so yeah, start sure. at the beginning. How did you get into music, man?
2: I kind of always was in my head. And I remember as a little kid, I would write poems. I say a little kid, but like, I think it was like third grade. I had a poem published and it Children's magazine. It was like an educational magazine called Caboodle. My teacher mm. submitted a poem. Maybe it was fifth grade, third grade, fifth grade. I just remember getting a, a poem published in elementary. I think it was called something like Choices and Decisions. Oh man! <laughs> so like a ten-year-old writing a poem <laughs> called Choices and Decisions about life's heavy choices <laughs> and decisions, right? So I mean, I I grew up with, I would say, religious home. I don't think my parents would probably want. To describe it as a religious home, but uh. so I was also aware of heavy things. There was like always like heavy conversation. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know whatever it was. I still was already prone towards you know pondering life's big questions, and so I wrote this poem called "Choices and Decisions." Got published in this magazine, and that was kind of the first time I remember thinking, "Oh, this is a nice little outlet I can write like this." So I would write a lot, and. I started getting into hip hop. I don't know if it kind of took shape in that, but that was the time I remember it all coming together. I yeah. write poetry. Yeah. I was like sixth grade. I was starting to get into hip hop. I was fascinated by, you know, the scenes that were popping up and, you know, stuff that was coming out of New York and the hip hop. This is the late eighties, early nineties. And I just got really into the, the music and the culture and all that sort of stuff. And so I started being like, Hey, this is a, uh, I would kind of start writing raps and I'd rap them over like uh you know, instrumentals or if there was, um, I remember sometimes, you know, I'm, 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 I'm trying to thinking we're trying to remember, you know what they say, Chris, they say, I've heard this, that a memory is just a memory of your last memory. Oh. And so that's why sometimes it's like, when do we ever really remember anything accurately? Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, so that, I, am uh, always like, I'm always <laughs> funneling through like, wait, what, huh? How did this happen? Where did I get involved in music? Either way, I got into hip hop. I, yeah, yeah. I remember being at a church camp and being like 12 or 13 and being sort of like everybody was freestyling and me kind of thinking like, well, no one will take me serious if I do it, but I want to do it. So I kind of did it jokingly. And then the moment, everyone was like, this dude's pretty good then something clicked in my brain, like now I'm going to do it for real. So like, it was almost like in my <laughs> in my brain, halfway through my joking verse around a bunch of other teenagers in a circle, I was like, ah, now I'm going to get serious. <laughs> and I started like, and it became like a real thing for me. Like I actually solidified in my brain, like I, I can do this. And so, you know, one thing led to another, I started doing some local things and we would, you know, but it would be over like other people's instrumentals. And then around that time, was, like two things were happening. My mom was getting into uh christian death metal and took over a christian death metal label that's a whole other story what, what label is that <laughs> she didn't take it over but she helped with a label called i think it was row productions okay
1: there's a lot of christian metal guys that listen to this podcast yeah for some reason it's like a huge amount of them
2: well so my mom was way into christian death metal it's one of those things where i casually mentioned my mom running a christian death metal label that's a, in of itself a whole interesting story yeah but yeah like you know but my mom was way involved in the scene and she loved you know like really really like even my metal friends were like your mom's into some stuff that's just like way more intense than where we care to listen to Whoa, that's weird. <laughs> she I love was it. like way into it and so she was very encouraging of me to do like you know music and she right. knew I liked doing hip-hop and so she hooked me up with the producer in Akron and I did some things I don't don't remember if it actually ever got released somewhere along the line I eventually Just ended up taking out a bunch of money for a gear. She helped me get a loan for some gear. I started working full-time, bussing tables and paying off these loans. And I booked a show and we had no music and had a bunch of gear. And I said, I have about a month and a half to make a bunch of beats and figure out how to use all this gear. And it's not like I'm a gearhead. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm not necessarily hardwired like that. I just wanted to perform, make music and Mm. build a culture around what I wanted to build a culture around and had a group of guys that were like, we were all kind of like like-minded guys who loved hip hop, wanted to do something. And so we put together a show when I was like, I think it was like 15 or 16. I must've been 16 at a club. And I, I'm sure these tracks, if I were to go back and listen to them now, would have been like really funny to listen to. I don't know. I'm not going to say they were bad, but this was, I had, I had an MPC 3000. And so everything we did was on floppy disks. So nice. like you had like, eight seconds or something like that to sample. And so I was just figuring out how to do it. I'd go to half price books, buy a bunch of records to loop, tinker around on keyboards. I mean, I didn't, I never knew how to play anything. Uh I just kind of figured out how to do something and, you know, and I knew we wanted to perform and I didn't know anybody else who made beats. And so this was on me to do. So it wasn't like today when everybody is making beats, you know, like, so it was just a different time. And so we did that, um, started performing Decided to make an EP at the time. My mom had a distribution deal for her metal, for some of the metal labels. I think she was working on working with. And I can't remember all the parameters around that. You can interview her if you'd like. <laughs> uh, she'll tell you all about her metal days. And then I decided to kind of put out. We were going to maybe put our stuff out through that distribution mm. deal. Something happened. That never happened. So I just put out an independent EP. One thing led to another. Go To Records and a handful of other labels were interested. Depending on how long did you want me to be, but I we took a. I got a deal in around 99 or 2000. Okay. Did a couple showcases and Goatee offered me a deal. I liked Goatee, took the deal and and then uh, thus began my Christian rap journey.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, walk us through that. So I think you kind of had two things going on here. So I imagine you were working with producers at first, going to studios and then eventually- You're talking about the Christian, the Christian rap journey. The Christian rap journey. So yeah, walk us through this. So you were, you were I assume- So I got,
2: I got yeah. signed and then uh, they hooked me up with a guy named Todd Collins who was, he did a lot of projects that I actually really liked. Some of the old grit stuff. Mm. I don't know if anybody knows any of these artists, but I think he had worked on DC Talk's Jesus Freak album and stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's all Christian. I don't know what your audience is, but we're kind, we're welcome, to, welcome to the wonderful world of Christian rock.
1: <laughs> Let's talk about you getting produced by Tom Collins. Todd. Todd. Todd, Todd the, Collins.
2: Isn't the Tom Collins, that's a drink, right?
1: It is a drink. A Tom Collins cocktail. All right. So you were sipping Tom Collins, working with Todd Collins. Sipping Tom Collins,
2: working with Todd Collins, and uh, he's a really good producer, and i super proud of the work that we did together, and that happened probably, we did two records together through the course of like three-year period, I think it was like 2000, 2002, Probably about the time when you were walking into church and they were like, John did this. I got to state this too, because I I think you hear so many bad stories about labels and all this sort of, I had a great label. Like my label was awesome. That's amazing. I mean, they just cared about their artists. And I I mean, there were things that, you know, obviously you wish your career would have taken a different turn, but I can't complain about the character and just the the way they treated me was like awesome. So I had a really cool label and they saw that I was very hands-on with my music I was steering things in a different direction, you know, come my third record. And so, yeah, they let me produce it. So basically, Mm. yeah, that's what I did. I took the budget and I built a studio. And the funny thing about it is I don't know anything about gear at all. Half the time I'd be like, what gear do I have? It, which I said is a really funny conversation because these are all gearheads here we're talking to. But I, you know, apparently I was like, oh, I have Neve preamps. Apparently those are pretty nice because all the gearheads were like, those are sweet. You know what well, I mean?
1: And let me, let me tell you something. I didn't mention this before we did the interview. This is no big deal. Feel free to say brand names as much as you want. But our podcast is kind of weird. Mostly audio engineers that listen, but we have a gear slut alert. We don't talk about gear at all. Which is really weird in our industry. So, like, when this goes out, you'll hear like a, you're not allowed to mention gear. <laughs> you can, but you'll get a gear sled alert because you're just like, we don't want to hear about gear. Well, that's the thing. Is like in our industry, a lot of guys fixate of like, oh man, if only I had this piece of gear, then I'd be well, successful. So then,
2: I, then I am great for your podcast because yeah, I yeah, just yeah. didn't care. I didn't. I didn't know. I had a buddy who I had worked with in the past. So I should probably say I tracked my first EP with was a guy named uh, C R Pendleton.
1: Yeah who got mentioned on the podcast very recently.
2: So CR is an interesting guy, man. He's a really cool dude. And he kind of, me and you, I I think we've talked about kind of the trajectory of your career with mastering. But Mm. CR had kind of figured out a long time ago how to just produce a volume of indie bands and do it and do it well and and provide a good
1: piece of product. Let me kind of cut in here. We've got uh, a couple episodes ago, I forget which number it was, we had Seth Mosley on the podcast. You know Seth? Yeah. No way. Well, Seth is crushing it right now oh i know seth yeah. like he's writing like number one hits all day long for christian radio like yeah, he's yeah, destroying yeah. it but yeah seth was on so cr got mentioned like a couple episodes ago i I probably need to reconnect with him yeah,
2: i no, cr dude he he was a very sharp guy man and huh. as far as like understanding how to build a business around recording i mean and obviously seth worked with him so he knew talent but yeah no so cr ended up coming into my, I and mean, it was a house and a little house and uh, we redid our basement and mm-hmm. that's where I made my third record. We outgrew that. And then that's when I got to the other place with the, you know, the house and the little house in the back that we put yeah. the studio in. And so we were just making music in the back. So for two albums, it was CR and, you know, he, some of my, probably I would say my most successful stuff came out of me and him kind of tinkering in the back. At that time, it's like, I listened to those records and I'm like, some of it, I'm like, what? Was I thinking? <laughs> this is a style I should have never have attempted. <laughs> like, and then some of it I absolutely love. But the point is, is we were experimenting and having fun, and that was really fun too working
1: with him. That's awesome. So the label funded the record. Yeah, you bought yeah, gear. Cr came over, and you guys. Yeah, we produced it together. Mm. So
2: I, my production, like when I say I, I produce, I, I produce probably in a very traditional, old school way, where uh-huh. I'm like really dig into the division of something or mm. you know, try to. It's just very hands-on and how, you know, song selection, how we're going to navigate that if I were to work with another artist, but I was never behind the boards.
1: See, to me, that's a dream. If I were ever going to produce again, I would want to be the guy that didn't touch any gear.
2: But I feel like nowadays you've, the only producers are the guys who are doing it all. Kind of. Yeah. 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 So that's what I say. It was very old school, but that's because I was also an artist. I mean, and I was only part of the production that was going on. I was working with guys like CR and then that's when Seth, Seth Ernest, who I ended up doing three records with, but then Seth ended up coming and hanging out in the guest house and, and producing and, and writing. And
1: and it's at this point that I kind of enter the story here. And I remember I was sitting there and you guys had just gotten masters back from somebody and you're like, ah, these don't sound good. Gosh, this is like our third revision. What are we going to do? And I was like, um, I could maybe try to master these for you. And it was like, it was like kind of you were like the first client I had after I stopped taking any That's other projects. That's hilarious! Project. Right? Well, yeah,
2: I remember that. Yeah, and very clearly. It was wild because the legendary story how I can hear dither.
1: Yeah. So this is funny. I had done a masters for you guys, and clearly, you know, this is ages ago. I was not as good as I am now, and I had inadvertently double dithered. <laughs> I had more than one dither going on in the master. And I gave you a master that had just, like...
2: And uh, explain to me what dither is again.
1: <laughs> well, without getting too technical, like, it makes things sound better when they get converted to, like, a lower-quality file.
2: It's just a subtle... It's You shouldn't be able to hear You it. shouldn't be able to hear
1: So what happened was I gave you a master where I inadvertently just had, like, way more dither than I should have had on it. And then I was like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me redo that. And I sent you a second master. And you could even though like I couldn't hear any difference, you could reliably pick between too much dither and proper dither. And I remember sitting it in your car. So like, I made a CD that was like track one. Uh-huh. Like I randomized it like track one, song one, too much dither, track two, song one, proper amount of dither and didn't tell you which is which. And you like nailed it. Like you're like, oh, it's that one. It's that one. It's that one. And I remember just being like, what the hell? Like, <laughs> how is he doing this?
2: I still don't fully know what dither is, but I wear that as a badge of honor. You whenever, can hear it. Whenever I tell Seth when he's mixing, I'm like, Seth, remember to stop acting like I'm being too picky here. I'm the man that can hear dither. <laughs> I, can, I can tell the difference. Like, oh, man. Uh, what did we go with? Did we
1: go with double dither? We went with way too much dither.
2: Those songs still sound really good. I went back and I was, because uh, I'm working on a new set and I pull in a few tunes from that album and I listen, I was like, yeah, that album sounds really good, dude. Yeah, man. Well, thank you.
1: It was a ton of fun. Your mix engineer was really good. He made it very easy on me too. So there's that. I forget who it was. Anyways. Okay. So let's grab us back on course here. So you, you're working out of a home studio. You're making records. These records are doing all right. They're selling. They're selling. Yeah, a ton of people are all over the world listening to your music. I don't know if I'd say a ton, but I had a good
2: audience and I, you know, like enough to keep making records. Yeah. Do you yeah. know
1: how many records you sold
2: in your life? I don't know the exact number. It, it, it wouldn't be like, it's nice. I feel good about it, but it's <laughs> nothing like,
1: it's in, nothing insane. In like, Christian music, it, it was good.
2: For what I was doing in the 2000s as a guy doing kind of alternative hip hop and the youth group world. Yeah, you are feeling it. I did really well, and I'm really—I mean, I got to make music. I was proud of that's—that's that's, awesome. that's the thing too. Like, go to was all again. They were very supportive of me, and it wasn't like I was just handing them. Sometimes it would be something I think was like could have been easily marketable, and sometimes it's like, I how are we going to market this tune? I, who's yeah. going to listen to this? Like, it depends on depend on the project, but or the you know. But I—I I think yeah, I did well. I'm—I'm I'm happy with it's it. It's awesome, but, man. Yeah, I like that you think it's a ton. well like in
1: in the christian music world well you tell me what you think a ton is i'm actually curious about this i don't know like a hundred thousand records back in the day is a lot
2: a ton of records (laughs) then, my man
1: (laughs) well i mean case in point I, i
2: have no gold records
1: it's all good so here's the thing case in point we were just at breakfast at north star cafe down the road here in westerville ohio i don't know if i mentioned this before you also live in westerville again westerville it's weird there's no reason Westerville should have so many cool people living in it but there are a bunch it's great it's a great town uh, it's a great town and uh, we were having breakfast it's normal better than anybody else it's true we're the most normal town you can it's possibly have it's the
2: most exciting normal town on the planet
1: there we go let's make that a slogan but yeah we were at breakfast and somebody walked up and and uh, introduced himself and quoted your song lyrics at you and it was like
2: yeah this but is Chris this is I know this is making me sound good but that was my wife's old boss <laughs> You're
1: trying You're trying to create a story here that's not here, man. Oh, come on. It's like it was, my wife's old boss. It seemed like it seemed like he was a fan until he told us he was your boss and then yeah, I might have oversold that a little bit.
2: I had people who liked my music. I sold, I no, I yeah. I, I toured around the world. I I was very fortunate.
1: <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing a story one time about for somebody was like, "Man, I just went on a missions trip to Africa and all the people over there knew who John was." And I was like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. But let me let me get us back on course. I know Brian Hood is listening to this episode as he finalizes it and he's and he's thinking, damn it, Chris. Like tell like get on point. Tell the story. So let's talk more about Maker. Tell us the story of Maker.
2: So when you talk about that story, I, again you, you kinda talk about what I consider the beginning of a really cool scene. You know, so to me it's What year is this, by the way? I don't know the exact date. Maker came into existence off the top of my head. So,
1: 9, 010 is probably. 10, 10. <laughs> it was 010. 010. <laughs> 2010. 2010. 2010. 2010. And 011.
2: And you know, if you back up even before that, what was interesting is around 2006, I think it was. We could look it up. O five O six. I think. My brother wanted to shoot he just was really into this thing called YouTube
1: which had just come out.
2: It just came out. And my brother really wanted to shoot something around me and my career and do something funny or come up with something, pitch an idea cuz he saw YouTube as this um he was extremely excited about it cuz this was a, you know, he had, he's been he was talking about the future a long time ago, you know, like and I think he was a big champion of the idea that you didn't have to go to the gatekeepers and you could Mm. do this yourself. We were looking at it like, we'll shoot this fun video. We could put it on YouTube. I think he had figured out a lot of the different ways to like comment and get, you know, traction and you know, you could interview him. He probably could give you all the, you know, where does he he live now? He lives in LA. Okay. In Venice beach. So he wanted to shoot this video. We had talked about it, collaborated on it. And at the same time he said, and I think, I think he goes, Hey, could your label get us a a budget to shoot this video? (laughs) And so I talked to the label about it, you know, build it, doing like a, like a mockumentary. And at the time I just got done, I mean, I was a big, like, you know, Christopher Guest fan and all that stuff that was, oh, out. Yeah. so this is before mockumentaries were mockumentaries, huh. but I was also just kind of pulling from this bizarre character that was probably a little bit of some relatives mixed with my own delusional ideas of, you know, of trying to figure out how to be find my place in, you know, the the world of music huh. uh, as an MC and then kind of spoofing aspects of like, uh, indie culture, I guess, yeah. you know, you know, kind of combining all of these into this character and we called it, you know, the professional rapper, but he was just like, have you ever seen this video? I have not. And you have to go watch it. Dude. Okay. But we shot this thing and it did really well. Ended up getting featured on YouTube. And at the time it was like 250, maybe 300,000 views or something like that. But at the time that was like, and again, memories of memories, like I would have to double check and verify all this. But at the time that was like really stinking good. And yeah. I remember like a couple guy from my label was like, this is the best marketing plan we've ever had because we just got all these views, you know, all this traction for X amount of dollars to shoot this thing. And so it was like, uh, you know, now we were always having these sort of conversations at the time about like, Hey, you know, content is marketing. People weren't talking like that at that time. Now that's like, no duh. But at the time it was like, why would we put all this money into print? Why would we put all this money into radio that no one's, maybe might, might not listen to you, especially in the Christian world. Like a lot of these different marketing tactics weren't working, but if I could create a really stirring piece of content that like engaged people. And, you know, I was always into this idea of kind of creating these sort of worlds around what I was doing. And like, so I honestly think it'd been interesting had my music come out. Ten years later, in the world that we live in now, mm. you know, if I would have been a young twenty-year-old, what I would have done, when you know, with video and all these sort of things. So I say all that. I mean, I'm being long-winded here, but that was kind of the beginning origins of like really, like for me at least, looking at the YouTube space and mm. looking at the online space. You and guys learned there's something here. really exciting. We should lean in. And this is back, you know, again, oh five oh six, when it wasn't like it wasn't what it is today. Fast forward a few years, I you know I went back to LA because my brother and a different group of people were starting to build like a, a small little you know collaborative community of people who were shooting videos and content and being able to go directly to like uh, different people who, who were advertisers and were utilizing the online space to like promote their videos and still very new, very all kind of the beginning stages of what we would now understand as like, oh yeah, you're a YouTuber or you're, you know, whatever. Anyway, so I'm mumbling here trying to fast forward all this sort of stuff, but around 09. So I was out there till about 08, moved back home. I think it was like a year or two later, Maker started. And then I moved back out in like 2011 and was a part of this company that was, it just kind of, it was, I mean, it was really exciting and it was like really taking off. And so I mean, I don't know the number of people who were there when I started, but by the time I left, I mean, it was quite the operation. Yeah. It was I, a, it was a pretty imagine. big operation and it happened very quickly. It was just the right place, right time. But then there was also a lot of like hard work from a lot of like-minded people who had a lot of vision around what the future of entertainment could look like.
1: Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about what you were doing at Maker. Like what did a day look like? <laughs> For, I'm sure there was like every day was different, but like, what was your kind of primary role?
2: You know, startup world, man. <laughs> Jeez, dude. You just like, yeah, but there is a little bit of that startup world, man. Dude, like there were a lot of things, you know, you huh. did a lot of stuff, you know, I hunkered down at the music studio. So I was in, you know,
1: uh, let me interrupt real quick. I think what would be helpful for, to set the stage here are name, some viral videos that you had a hand in, producing or working directly with the artist like what are some of the projects that people are gonna be like oh no way i saw that
2: a lot of the stuff so when this studio i was in you know i won't say like i had a hand in this is that like i I, huh. I i was always pretty adamant about making sure as an artist myself that the creatives got you know like Top-vailing. did they yeah because yeah, yeah. this was we were facilitating we were facilitating a culture and a community and an operation and doing our best to like bring people together to like you know, build together. And so in our studio, we had a cool little spot, you know, in Venice Beach. I don't know if you were ever there, Mm-mm. but, you know, we had like four rooms where people could record. We had a bigger room with a main uh, engineer. But in that office where I was at, where I camped out at, we had, um, you know, Epic Rap Battles of History was in there. Mm. Mike Tompkins, who, you know, Mike's, you know, still a very good friend. We recorded the Tessa Violet record mm. in there, which, you know, Tessa stuff guys like your favorite martian trying to think of some other big stuff that went through but we were always getting like some bigger guests that would come through and do stuff so there was a lot of really successful people doing like some pretty cool things in that building and again i was one piece of a much bigger collaborative group of people who were pushing this thing forward but it was wild man it was it was really wild because it all i mean when you think about like a a factory of, you know, innovation or like content creation. And I mean, we had three or four studios and people were creating and yeah. soundproof rooms and pumping out videos that would generate huge numbers. And, you know, people would be, I mean, there was a lot of like, I mean, when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, it's pretty cool that I got to be a part of all of that, you know, and at the forefront of a lot of like where the world of entertainment was going. You yeah. Know? You know, I, the ones that people always seem to get a trip out of, like people will always bring up like, you know, Epic rap battles of history. If you've ever seen, amazing, I mean, yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they were so brilliant. And they really that, were. They are yeah. really fun. So that was always a fun thing to to watch come alive. Those guys, you know, they they really had their systems dialed in, and it, just, it was like they, you know, they were putting out some really cool stuff.
1: Well, and I think your guys' story is so interesting because there's there's a wave, there's a technological and cultural shift happening here, and YouTube was not the juggernaut that it now is. It was a baby. It yeah. was it was like a TikTok, you know. Right now, like, mm-hmm. oh, this YouTube, it might be, it might become a thing, but we'll see. And you guys seem to, particularly with YouTube, ride that wave in a really, really intense way. And I, I think one of the things that I think is so interesting about that we were talking about this this morning at breakfast is, I would imagine you guys would make something, maker, that's what you do, right? And then you'd release it, and within like two seconds the views would start to come in the comments would start to come it's in it's like instant
2: gratification
1: now you put it a record and you're like do people like it I uh, will maybe I don't know well, it's funny because now it's like I can I can kind of you kind of you get that now when you
2: put out music because you put mm. out music you can kind of say oh these people are responding I just posted this tweet about this new song yeah. and people like yeah, yeah, it yeah, yeah. you know yeah no. so that's what I'm saying it depends on what period I mean because you can even go back before Maker mm. and I can go back to just that little that house in Venice beach where there were like a lot of those first YouTubers (laughs) and they, I mean, I remember like my brother sitting up in his loft in his house, just like posting a video and, you know, commenting on things and seeing how people respond. And, you know, so it was interesting to be a part of Mm. that. The origins of how all that came to be is really interesting to me. By the time we were deep into maker, you know, it was kind of, you know, it's a, it, you hear this term, it's almost played out, but when you say the Wild West, it really is the Wild West. You're kind of making it up, figuring it out as you go Dude. as creators. Yeah. And you just saw this new opportunity. It was a world, a new opportunity. You didn't have to wait for the big companies to come in and say, you can make something. You could just make it. And if people liked it, you could do well out of it. You could build a career at it. And if you stayed active with it, and these, I mean, these kids, I say kids, kids, adults, whatever, they're in, insanely talented because some people are like, oh, it's just a goofy video. I was like, you know how hard it is to make that goofy video, <laughs> to shoot it, to edit <laughs> it, to conceptualize it, to put it out there, to stay engaged with the people who are responding to it, to build your audience. I mean, these sort of things were not like, I don't know what else to say. I already said it yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's difficult to do. you know. So it's funny. We're sitting here talking. You're talking about your podcast right now. I'm like, you're saying like, I, John had so much more stress. I'm like, I understand the stress you're going through. Mm. From an art, you're kind of like an artist right now. You're, you're a creator. You're trying to build your thing and maintain your thing and engage your audience with it and give them a real good product. That's why you have wonderful guests like me who come (laughs) on
1: and, you know, and well, let me kind of pull a piece of what you make bad dad jokes. Heck yeah, dude. I need more of those in my life. We all do.
0: Before we get into the podcast today, let me tell you a little something crazy about myself. I'm actually a psychic and I'm going to prove it to you. You and I, we've probably never met, but I bet I can describe your business better than you can. Here's what my crystal ball says. You probably have no idea how to get clients other than waiting around for referrals and word of mouth. You're stuck in a perpetual cycle of feast or famine, so you have wild income swings from month to month. You're charging way less than you should and you know it, but you don't do anything about it. You feel like you have a million things you could be doing in your business and you have no idea what you should be focusing on. And you have tons of little half-built bridges leading to nowhere Because you've jumped from thing to thing to thing as a dabbler am i right does this sound eerily similar to you that's because i've been in your shoes and i've worked with thousands of freelancers who've also been there so i'm not a psychic my crystal ball is not real i just have a really clear understanding of what freelancers are facing today and if i can predict your problems you can bet i actually have a solution to these problems It's called Client Acquisition. We talk about this all the time on the podcast, but for some reason, freelancers still haven't really figured this out yet. This is why I created Clients by Design Coaching. It's a truly unique coaching program that helps you build your own client acquisition machine so you can break out of this feast or famine cycle that most freelancers never escape. So here's how our approach is unique. First, we do a deep dive on your business, we figure out what's missing, and we give you a complete marketing roadmap right from the start. So no more dabbling, no more guesswork, just a clear path to getting more clients. You always know what your next step is because we actually assign specific tasks to you. So instead of feeling overwhelmed, instead of feeling scattered, you can just focus on your next step. That's it. We give you unlimited feedback on everything you do so you can feel confident that every single step you're taking is the right one. And we hold you accountable, not by nagging you, but just by genuinely supporting and cheering you on every step of the way. If you're behind on any steps we've assigned to you, we'll proactively reach out and see how we can help. Clients by Design is not a course. We look at it like a partnership. We'll always show up. We'll always give you what you need, but you have to be willing to put in the work. This program is not for everyone and that is okay. As of right now, I just checked the numbers. We've only approved about 25% of the applicants we've gotten so far. And that's because we are selective. We only accept your application if we believe we can truly help you. So if you're ready to end your feast or famine cycle and build a client acquisition machine, you can apply for Clients by Design by going to sixfigurecreative.com slash coach. That's the number six, figurecreative.com slash coach. Now here's our show.
1: I think one of the things I want, to, I want to pull out of what you just said is you talked about the Wild West. Yeah. And I think if you want to talk about your success, it's that you figured out where the Wild West was and you went out there and you did some gunslinging. And I think the reverse picture of that, that so many people do is they want to look at somebody else's blueprint. We talked we talk about this a lot on the show uh, in regards to, it's a book called Blue Ocean Strategy. And for those of you that haven't heard that episode, the general idea is that when you're building a business, you can build it in the red ocean or the blue ocean, the red ocean, a lot of competition. Everyone's trying to do the same thing. Everyone's trying to follow the same blueprint. And as a result, there's blood everywhere. Everyone's getting torn to pieces. And then blue ocean is like, I'm going to go and do something that nobody else is doing because I'm going to go to the wild west. I'm going to figure out where things are in flux, where things are changing. And it's, in the blue ocean that you can see occasionally really, really fast growth. You're not competing. You're not thinking about what other people are doing. You're just making art. You're just executing.
2: Yeah, man. I think I understand what you're saying.
1: Yeah. So I, I think what's fascinating for you guys is that you went to the Wild West.
2: You always hear this like, the what's the why? People always talk about the yeah, why, yeah. the why, the why. And what's really great and cool about Maker and the whole culture at the time is I understood clearly the why, and I was excited about the why. I mean, when you talk about the democratization of content or however you want to put that, what that era felt like to me was a real sense of independence. And it really, I think for a lot of people, when I go back, and I was even saying this a little earlier, when I track how I got into music, I was never even, I never really cared about like getting a record deal, any of those sort of things. It wasn't like, I was into independent hip hop and I loved the culture. I loved, I loved the vibrancy of the whole culture of hip hop and not just even just the music or the idea of a record label or like, I liked, you know, the B-boying. I liked the the art. I liked the DJs. I liked the whole thing and mm-hmm. the vibrancy of the community and the culture of it. And I think there was a, a sense of independence that me and other like-minded people had. So when, shifting into the youtube space and kind of at that time there was just this sort of like crazy unique energy going on where i used to hear these words like the democratization of content and meaning like anybody could could do it you, you didn't have to wait for a gatekeeper to say it was okay if you had the will if you had you know enough resources to just put together a cool idea and and shoot it low budget like there were people who were there to respond to it, and then the idea that you know YouTube is like you could put it up there, and yeah, I don't know how they look at it now, younger younger generations, but at the time that Take was that was revolutionary that you could put something up there. You know, at the same time, you had MySpace popping. You know what I mean? That you could put something online, people could share it, you could build an audience, you could build your own audience, mm. and it was your audience. You know what I mean? And you could talk directly to people and you could create a format that was engaging, then you could put it out there. You could get on a regular routine of putting it out there and you could kind of schedule it out and you could actually make a career for yourself doing that. That was revolutionary. I think, you know, what happened was that now you see major industries in, in entertainment taking their cues from it. But at the time, it was this sort of thing that was on the fringes of, you know, entertainment. But it ended up becoming kind of a pop culture. Yeah. You know, and so... That was really exciting. We knew the why. I mean, if you ask what it was, it's like a digital studio. It's the studio of the future, you mm. know, and that was really exciting to be a part of. And I think that that is still like, you know, when you talk about like people who do things or want to set out to do something like, you know, you knew we were going out, moving out to LA when I flew out there with my wife and my one-year-old literally got off the plane, went to Ikea, grabbed a mattress, and you know <laughs> shared a house with my brother and his girlfriend. You know, like It was exciting because we knew what we were getting into. You know what I mean? Uh, and we'd kind of been around and been a part of it from the beginning. And it was a trip, man.
1: I think the interesting question here, the, the big takeaway that I think could change some people's lives listening to this podcast is there was a moment and there was a place and th- it's going to happen again but it's going to be something totally different. It might be TikTok. It might be somebody who starts a business doing similar stuff to what Maker did, but for making like TikTok videos, and instead of just being like, oh, we're going to hold our our phone up and whatever happens, happens. To put thought into it and to have a production team. You look at YouTube, and correct me if I'm wrong, but before you guys, generally speaking, you had one-person teams making videos. And it's like, oh, we got a guy. There was no, like, let's build a structure to make the best damn content that we possibly can.
2: Well, I think the one person team was still very much the spirit of that era. Yes. But it was the support that you want, you know, or the collaboration, you know, and the sharing of audiences and the growing of audiences Mm. and and the community of people who are engaged to this new form of entertainment. It's interesting you even say something like TikTok and I I honestly don't know I think I've seen very little about TikTok. I mean I'm I'm surprisingly out of the loop on a lot of stuff Same. right now. But a lot of that stuff always felt like a derivative of the first era anyway. So you can't recreate what was it's kind of like saying let's go back and recreate 60s rock. It'll never yeah. happen again. It'll never happen like again. So there's something else out there that somebody's exploring that we don't even understand. And if I understood it, then I would be the one championing it. But there's something going on. I think that with TikTok, TikTok is like a derivative, in my opinion, from just how I view it. A lot of these other stuff are just a derivative of the initial movement that happened in the early 2000s. Yeah, where this initial life was given to independent creators, where you know, you know, you could post your you just post your stuff online.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and have a platform that was easy. Well, because even back then, if you made a record and wanted to put it on iTunes, it was not fast. No, it took a while.
2: When was the first? It was like, was it Gwen Stefani was the first single on iTunes, right?
1: I want to say iTunes was like 2002,
2: 2002, 2003. Um,
1: but even then, like, you know, when it became possible to get distribution as an independent artist, you know, with CD Baby and then eventually TuneCore and, and DistroKid now, like these companies have made it easier. But initially back then, there wasn't really a space where you could just like, hey, I made this like five minutes ago. I just finished. I want to get real-time feedback. You know, it's interesting. It's like when I think
2: about my music career, I think someday I'm going to be able to look at this and even, maybe even find it more fascinating. Mm-hmm. But my career follows the trajectory of that shift and that change. Like my yes. first album came out in 2000, the beginning of 2000. Cassette tape and CD, things being boxed and shipped to stores. But then there was always this rumor that the world was about to change all throughout my music career. Things are going to change drastically. You know, second record came out still is kind of a similar thing. But at that point that was right when things were becoming like the beginning stages, I think of iTunes. So every album, there was always this weird thing of like, yeah, it sold less, but in today's landscape, that's even better because the world is changing. Napster's out there. And so there was always this sort of like my career. And by the time 2010 hit, this was before streaming fully hit, you know, and there was a sense of like, nobody's buying music anymore. And then I pivoted into the uh, different, you know, still similar to the space I was in and, you know, and that it's entertainment. You're putting out, you know, created content, but you know, I shifted more to the video space.
1: Well, and let me bring something up here. I, I think one of the things that's interesting, I'm always kind of fascinated with trying to figure out someone's superhero ability when I'm doing like I'm coaching somebody or every single time I meet anybody like that's the first thing I'm thinking of like what makes them special and for you I think a lot of your success is probably rooted in the fact that you were a great entertainer and that you knew what entertaining was that's how you were able to entertain people so when you pivoted to taking more of a behind-the-scenes role that was a super strength for you for you to be able to see that magic in somebody else and recognize it and be a compass.
2: I don't know, are we allowed to sit around talking about our superpowers? Sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> feels a little
2: <laughs> Feels a little cocky well, to talk about superpowers. <laughs> I think that every single person has a superpower. Well, you know, for me, I think I was always hands-on in my own business, so even when I was an artist, you know, I'd hear people complain about labels and how bad the labels were, and I, I would always think to myself, man, these guys are putting... Hard-earned money towards your career, and I was always doing the numbers. I'm like, most of the time, these labels aren't making money off artists. they yeah. they were hedging their bets that one artist would break, and especially in the world I was in, certain aspects of Christian music there was good money to be made, but you know there was a ceiling for all alternative Christian hip hop artists. Heaven was the ceiling. Heaven, <laughs> heaven was the ceiling. So you know, going back to some of our earlier conversations about like me building my own studio, I also was my own manager. And I had my own team and we just managed it like a small business. Mm. And I always had a tremendous amount of respect for my label and my booking agents and all the people who were working on my behalf, who were putting all this energy and their resources into making my career move forward. Like I had a, nothing but respect for that. So I think what that did, because I was also dealing with my own business dealings, because the way I looked at it is like, if I got a manager and I went through that process. I was doing those percentages. It was like, I knew what my ceiling was mm-hmm. in this market. I think I knew that, hey, this is the difference between having a mortgage or like either living a middle-class life or like struggling. Yeah. Like I I could do the numbers and I could kind of, you know, I mapped it out. So we took on more work. My wife worked for the company and we just built it like a, a mom and pop operation. That worked out well because I had to deal with the business side of it. I knew how hard it was. And so I think- I also knew how hard it was to be an artist and to be vulnerable and to put yourself out there, and so I think where I was able to get ahead probably in many ways is that I understood both sides really well, and I think that worked to my advantage when working with talent to be able to you know I don't know if you call me an a and r but for lack of better words or you know to be in that space to know that these artists were putting their like everything into something, but then then also to be able to see the other side and how hard it is to run a business mm. and how hard it is to keep that thing going and moving. And to make payroll and all these sort of things that come with, you know, the business side of it. So I've always been able to kind of live in that that tension yeah. between artists and the practical side of what it takes to run a business. And that, that's not to say like now I think there are a lot more artists who are much more because a lot of artists are doing it all themselves. And entrepreneurs, so they, cool Entrepreneurs, now. right. Yeah. But in that time, in that space, it wasn't, you know, people were waiting for the label to do something and break them. Yeah. Now, ever I think a lot of artists inherently understand, I got to do it myself. Yeah. So, I don't know. I think that probably was a superpower, maybe in the <laughs> 2000s to 2014, maybe. Okay. I had a superpower 2015. But
1: Well, I think that's still really relevant for today. We were talking this morning, this place that I talk about all the time, North Star Cafe, is like this masterpiece of restauranting, and the building is gorgeous. to this gorgeous modern architecture. The food is amazing. The entire experience is incredible. And we were talking this morning about this kind of Venn diagram. You've got two circles, form and function, and where they overlap is that's kind of my favorite place to live. Of Thanks like, for w- breakfast, by the way. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> and, and so the idea there is when you get form and function together, that's really, really interesting. And this is kind of what this podcast is about. There's a predominant lie in the arts and in especially music that just owning the art circle is enough. Just having talent is enough. And that this business circle is totally irrelevant. That if you just get the art circle right, everything else will figure itself out. But man, dude, music business history is littered with like the normal story is artist, career, cheated, artist is not poor. This constant theme. So I love where you're going with this of having both of the circles and how that was a superpower for you. And I would say probably everyone listening to this show is pursuing that in some way, shape or form. They're like, okay, cool. Got to work on my art skills and got to work on my business skills. And only with their powers combined will I realize my dreams. That's true, man. That's my story, 100%. Well,
2: we were, I mean, you know Seth, and you probably don't remember the guy who was touring with me, Brad Binion, but the I know Brad. Okay, yeah. You know
1: Brad. So, I mean,
2: we had, I mean, it was funny. Our operation was very different. I mean, it could not, it was the least rock star thing out there. I mean, like everyone's like, oh, you got to where like, yeah, we were usually in bed by like 10. The whole time I was even with Goatee, you know, my experience it was just a really good experience. Hmm. I never blew up the way- some other artists maybe have blown up but I also you know ran a successful business Mm. and I had a great partnerships and what I one of the things I did love about the we were talking about you know some of these early stages of these content creators is they were all very savvy it felt like Mm. a lot of them were very savvy they wanted to do it all themselves
1: well that's a wild westism yeah nobody shows up in a brand new world and says oh you know the system will take care of me yeah like they knew like they were the, very entrepreneurial. Yeah, right. this is only gonna work. Like I'm, I would imagine. Was it Mike Tompkins you mentioned earlier?
2: Uh, my name? Mike, someone, yeah, that worked with. Yeah,
1: so I would imagine that you know, like one of the guys you worked with, Mike Tompkins, was killing it on YouTube, but would like meet like his mom's friend, and his mom's friend would be like, "Oh, what do you do for a living?" And he'd be like, oh, I'm, uh, "I'm a YouTuber." Like it would be awkward. To be like, well, I'm a Wild Wester. Like I'm, I'm, do, I'm trying to do something new. So as a result, like I am actively problem solving. And I think that that, yeah, this kind of brings it home. I think that a lot of people in the audio industry and in the music industry lose because they're not problem solving. They're not actively problem solving. And as a result, they aren't actively growing. And they're just like sitting back. And it's the, we talk about this a lot on the show. It's this, if you build it, they will come mentality of like, oh, like I made this piece of art and I was so genuine and I poured my heart out. And like the world now owes it to me to be like, wow, good
2: job. Well, no, man, you know, like I can even say on my own stuff, the new stuff I'm putting now, like I, it's, it's hard not to fall into that. If you build it, they will come mentality. Yeah. Cause you just been, when you've done it for so long, but I'm like, in many ways I have to start over every time because there was this yeah. huge gap and it's like. Start to ask yourself. I mean, it's really funny. I mean, sometimes I sit back. I'm like, I'm 41 years old, putting out my a rap record. You know, it's just <laughs> like <laughs> and, you know, you you could see you could the self awareness can kind of kick into the whole process. Yeah. But to take all that out of it. What I've also realized is like I'm not owed anything. I got to start over all over again, mm-hmm. and I've got to build it all over again. And you know, it's now how bad do I want it? You know, is it just a hobby at this point? Which you know, is it just something fun I'm doing? Which it is just something fun I'm doing right now. But I think you've got to always, you know, be willing to reinvent yourself. I mean, I feel like we're you hear this sort of talk all the time. So I'm like, oh my god, am I really about to say reinvent yourself and stay hungry and stay, you know, nimble and all these sort of things? But you have to because it changes so fast. Yeah, and I think what I, again, a lot a lot of these creative people who were coming up in the in at that time, they were like, yeah. You were excited that there was a place that you could make something and be a part of this socialized video conversation that's happening, kind of this new medium for entertainment that hadn't existed before. You were excited to be a part of it. You're already on the forefront. You're already probably very assertive in your own, you know, and and what you, and not just waiting for somebody else to come along and, you know, fund something for you. You know, you did, you took the initiative on your own. I don't know how that translates into the world you're in, you know? It does translate. I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't know the mechanism in which you would, you know, what sort of like tricks of the trade or anything like that.
1: Well, here's how I would apply it. So, yesterday, some kind of weird happened here at the office. Ryan, who is Andy J. Pizza's agent, showed up with a piece of art that he found like sitting outside his neighbor's house in the trash. And it's like this pretty big poster from the 60s. And it's a caveman with a chisel making a wheel. And then there's two cavemen in the background kind of like whispering and snickering. And then the quotation mark, it's kind of like a New Yorker style cartoon, is it'll never work. To me, I was like, that's the freaking coolest thing I've ever seen because I'm sure that's how it was. That like, Ugg the caveman is like trying to make a wheel and it would be pretty hard to do this in like 10,000 BC or whatever it happened to be. And I would imagine that a lot of cavemen were just thought it was hilarious that he was willing to go into wild west world and be like yo i think i can overcome friction with this shape that i'm making and like we'll be able to move things farther so like if we catch a giant animal we can like put him in this thing i'm going to call a wagon and like drag him <laughs> to me like that's so fascinating and i think what's interesting to pull out of your story here is that there will always be two cavemen in the background saying it'll never work. And there will always be a new Wild West. There will always be like a TikTok, man, that's for kids. You know, like why would you spend any time on TikTok or like Instagram, man, that's like, that's, I, I mean, Instagram's harder to hate on because it's kind of, it's super popular. But you look at every new shift in culture and the reaction is always a collective, it'll never work.
2: That makes sense. But, you know, you know, here's what's interesting because you're sitting here thinking, talking about stuff. I, I think one of the challenges I always have in these sort of conversations is half the time, I think I was just a doer. Like, why wouldn't I start an indie label when I was 16? An indie <laughs> Christian rap label. Or, you know what I mean? Why wouldn't my mom start a, be a part of the Christian death metal scene in her mid-40s? And why wouldn't I just plug into the, we, we you have gear, we can make a record, we'll put that record out and it'll be distributed, right? That's how that, you know, I think sometimes if you overthink something instead of just moving forward with something and letting, there's that sort of like, you can stay in conceptual mode so long that you never go anywhere and you yeah. try to mastermind something. The thing about the Wild West mm. is you got out there, you didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah. And you just went for it.
1: You drew. You pull the gun out and you started shooting it.
2: Sometimes, a lot of times, it doesn't work. So, I think for me, yeah, you know, I'm looking back and be like, "Wow, that's crazy that we did all of that." You know, because it was just like, "Well, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I?" You know, someone was offer me a record deal. That's cool. I like them. These seem like great guys. And you know, at the time, there was no sort of like, I didn't have a manager. You know, I didn't even know what an A&R was. I didn't know any of this stuff. I didn't know any of the parameters of it. I just knew I wanted to make music and build something cool around what I was doing and bring my team along and put it out there. And, you know, then it's like, oh, we're going to shoot these videos and do this cool thing. Oh, that's fun. We can create a series of sketch comedies and I can somehow apply that to my music career and I can have a multifaceted, you know, I could be a renaissance man. I could be, you know what I mean? Like I can be, I can do sketch comedy. I can be an artist that works well with the live show I'm trying to put together You know, why wouldn't I do that? So much better than, you know, hoping someone thumbs through a magazine and sees my face there and says, oh, he's got a new record out. You know, I would much rather build a culture around what I was doing. And the whole idea was you build a community and an audience and you engage with that audience and you're constantly engaging with them. And that's what I think more than anything, the new world offered, you know, is that you could stay in constant communication and engagement. Now, I think there is also... A downside to that because you can overdo that, you know. Now you have all these people coming in with their marketing strategies. You got to communicate on social media, and you do it this way, and you do it this way. And honestly, I think some of it just becomes noise. If it feels like you're a marketer, you're not doing it right, probably, you know. And Ooh. so, I think that's the flip side of the challenge. I think of being able to do it all now. Because it, like I, you know, you ever see this, you're you on Facebook or something and some guy just blitzes you with like everything he can do for you or what he's doing. And yeah, it's, it's annoying. It, it's just too much. It's too much. It's too much. So I think there's a, there is a real strategy and to, I hate to use these words like brand building and all that, but it, you've, it's a, it's a delicate balance between what you can offer and then just feeling like a marketer. But I think for me, it was just every step of the way. There was always like, why not? Why not? I didn't, you know, like. You're an optimist. Yeah, but I, I can be deeply cynical too, which is a great, <laughs> I had a whole album. I, I'm also, uh, you can check that out. It's called Boy Versus the Cynic. It came out in, in the mid 2000s. <laughs> I love it. But no, but I, I think um, I think at that period of time, I was more accustomed to just kind of going for it, you know, awesome. you just do it.
1: Dude. Yeah. So I think this is really, really cool. I love your spirit of a couple of things you said. I love, you said you're a doer. And I love this. I'm fascinated by this quote. If it feels like marketing, you're doing it wrong. I think I probably misquoted you just then. (laughs) But this idea of like, we talk a lot about this book called The Go-Giver and we're like obsessed with it. And the essential idea is just like help people and everything else will figure itself out over the long run. And that's been a really intense kind of message for me because that's the podcast. It's like there there really wasn't a whole lot of strategy and it was like, oh, we're nerds and we like talking about this stuff. Maybe people would listen. Okay. Yeah, they do, they will. Cool. But there was never, I think I've emailed my email list like one time about the podcast and it, it just sort of keeps working. But the thing that's been really weird for me too, is as we make this content, and maybe this is too much behind the kimono here, but like all of my business is dramatically changed as I just started trying to make content. Just make it and do it. Make it and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I stopped being so intense with like YouTube ads or figuring out you know really complicated targeting, which all those things worked. Yeah, for me. yeah
2: no, I, I mean, I, and I do some of that too, and I actually have a buddy who's helping me do some of that even with my new project because nice. I, I think it's important. I mean, I, yeah,
1: but it, there is a level of like it shouldn't be the only thing.
2: Well, and it goes back to that whole initial concept, which again at the time was super revolutionary. I believe I don't know what it is now to say this, but content is marketing. So make meaningful stuff. Yeah. Make meaningful stuff and be consistent with it and engage people. And, and I don't know what the line is. I don't, I, people be like, where's the line? I don't know. You have to kind of figure that out. And Probably be, be totally to, depends. It just, I don't know when the line is you're doing it too much or you're not doing it enough. I, I don't know.
1: Yeah. Gary V would say you can't make too much content. I think, you know, I hear about, it. I,
2: I honestly don't know much about Gary V.
1: I know a lot of people like. You'll love or hate him or both. <laughs> yeah, so he's interesting. But I think let me pull some kind of truths out of this for us. I love your story. I love what you learned through it. I love that you were faithful the whole time to just make stuff, just do it and see what happens and then keep making stuff. And I think one of the things that worked out really well. For and I do want to say this.
2: I do want to say this. In all fairness, I had a label. Also, like
1: I want, I want to be clear
2: about that. I yeah. had a label helping market me. Like, so there's some things that I wasn't hands-on probably in understanding even when I was young. And so I could kind of come in here, flipping and be like, man, I just made it. and look what happened. <laughs> you know what I mean? But there is, I guess what I'm saying in all that is like some of the unique paths I took, I didn't think like, why shouldn't I do that? I just mm. did it. Yeah. So that would be probably unique. Like I didn't, you know, everybody else might've where I think maybe some traditional artists more, we might've been like, well, this is the way you do it. I was like, why not do it this way? Why wouldn't we do it this way? And I think some of that paid dividends for me. And some of it also like, like I was telling you when I put out the professional rapper video, you got to watch this thing. I remember watching, it said uh, GMA, Goatee played it at GMA. And I remember watching people's expression on this video. And I, it was, I actually remember being insecure about it because I was like, oh man, I realized quickly how weird it was <laughs> that I, I made this mockumentary. And I think what probably happened through the course of that period is like probably five out of 10 people who were into my music loved it. Two out of 10 were probably like, yeah, whatever. And probably three people were like, this guy's lost his mind. Oh, we don't know what's going on here. We're done. You know, so like, I don't know. <laughs> At the end of the day, But that what that did is that that sort of thinking paid huge dividends in the overall story. I think of what I was doing. You were okay with that. I was okay with that because I knew that if just music alone, making just putting on another record, doing the same tours over and over, I wanted to do more with creativity, and I wanted to expand on it, and I wanted to build a real culture around what I was doing, and not just put out records and cross my fingers and hope people would listen to them. And so I think that really helped. You know, I think long after my, I wasn't selling as many records, I was still getting shows because I think, you know, I I was still getting tours and tour, you know, people were taking me on tour because I think they knew that I brought something more than just the music that even people would know or not know. They knew that the music would connect, that there was something bigger to what I was doing Mm. that made it a little more engaging. And so... I think it did pay dividends. It You know, it didn't, I don't whether or not it blew my records up or didn't, you know, that's not the, that wasn't the whole, that wasn't the point. The point was, is it built something much bigger, but also I was going to say the thing about content too. When we talk about this story of like audiences, what I loved about those YouTube community figured out in those early days is like the collaborative side of it mm-hmm. and the sharing of audiences. And so, Again, I'm not sure how that's applicable to your folks listening, but the sharing sharing of audience and the collaboration, I think hip hop does this well too. I mean, hip hop is always featuring different people and, you know, and, and there's a, there's a real community aspect to hip hop music where, you know, you get featured on one person's project, they feature you and you share audiences and you build a community together. What I liked about the YouTubers is they would be acting in different, you know, a lot of the people I was around were acting in other people's sketches you know what I mean? They were like telling their fans about it. Their fans were telling their fans about it. They were sharing audiences. They were helped giving, you know, like sharing that audience with a new person coming up that they believed in. Huh. And so that there was a real cool community aspect to what was going on. And, you know, and I sure these books, I mean, I haven't read any of them, but I know there's tons of books on building your tribes and all that sort of stuff. Well, but, John,
1: you're a weirdo because I know you're not like a, business book nerd you somehow seem to n- have like an inherent wisdom of a- an inherent like understanding how machines work understanding how cultures work understanding super how communities superpower. superpower super, <laughs> <laughs> super power but so and like that's why i wanted to have you on the well, show
2: because i because i did it
1: yeah you did I, it i did it yeah. i mean
2: if I was a good enough writer, I could have wrote a book. But I, I, you know, there are other people who are better writers than me that are you know can write that book. But uh. I, I mean, I was I've been since I was fifteen or sixteen, and we were throwing hip hop shows, and you go out and you pass out flyers, and you try to get people to come, and you build a culture and community, you engage. I mean, you just build, you find the people who are going to be into what you're doing, and then you find other people who are doing something similar,
1: and dude. So let me deliver kind of like the final blow here because I'm learning a lot from this conversation. What I observe in our community of recording studio people is we have a lone wolf culture and there's like a myth of the lone wolf of like, Oh man, like he was just like a God and really he rose. I don't buy that. So my buddy, Brian hood that hosts the show, like it was when we developed a friendship that we started to see a lot of growth in each other. And the podcast grew along with it. Same with Andy J pizza is as we kind of met and became friends. We, Have gotten better. And I look back at myself like a year or two years ago and I'm like, wow, what a loser. Like I've learned so much and grown so much, but it's the community that drove that. And I think in our industry, the people that listen to this podcast primarily are recording studio folks that there's a a mentality of like, don't share, keep your secrets secret, do it on your own because what you really, really, really want is validation. You want to be like, I was successful. I did it by myself because I'm awesome and smirk.
2: Yeah, I don't buy it. I think we use the word genius way too frequently. Yeah. Like you're not that special. None of us are that special. That's why I'm doing the collaborative effort. I mean, I will say one thing. Sometimes community, too many voices can kill a project. Yeah. So there is a level of that, you know, too many people speaking into something. I fully Understand that yeah, as well. Yeah, I'm with
1: you there. I heard a saying one time that a camel is a horse made by committee.
2: Well, I, I, <laughs> I'm just saying when you,
1: camel is a horse, well, let's give it a hug. <laughs> no, let's give it two hugs. Some of the times.
2: <laughs> well, that's funny. I mean, that's you. like, I know I'm, this is me logically thinking about something's really funny and not laughing, but that's actually really funny. Yeah. You're very humorous, Chris. Why, thank you. That's a fantastic joke. I appreciate it. Well, I I think I, you know, speaking about myself, like, that's why I'm quick to say, like, you know, I I just did it. man. But no, I had people working my projects too, you know what I mean? And, but there were people who were catching on to, I think a big part of what my vision was also inspiring that vision. And I understand the power of the people who helped me get where I got, you know what I mean? And the, and the ability to share and and connect your audiences. And I mean, that's just, it's a cool thing.
1: This is a message that I don't think I'll ever stop needing, but this, I struggle with the lone wolf thing. I struggle with wanting to be like, Oh, I'm gonna do it on my own. I'll be fine. You're like, Oh, I'm, I'm gifted or some crap. And I love the way you've taken this conversation about like, cause you started initially like, Oh no, I was on team. And I, was on team. I was kind of like, no man, tell us how awesome you are. At the beginning of this episode, it's funny because even as we've been doing it, I've been like, man, I wish Brian was here for this episode with me because he makes everything better. We're better together than I am by myself. And you hear uh, that, Brian? Yeah, you hear that, Brian? He's editing this right now in Taiwan or something, Thailand. You make Chris better. You make me better. (laughs) But like, that really has been, I guess I'm like just connecting this right now. Like, the lesson of 2019 for me was the power of collaboration. Well, but you know what? And even if,
2: here's the thing, is even if you're kind of operating on your own, doing a project on your own, the fact that you're under the same roof with creative people upstairs yeah. and that you can swap ideas, you can get out of your own head, you can feel that sense of community, there's a lot of power in that. And, and, oh, yeah. and don't underestimate the collaborative nature of that. You know, So even if it is, like, there are times when it just needs to be you. Because if there's too many people over your shoulder, you just get out of the room, man. Let me just get this done. Yeah. Because I know what I need to do. I know where this needs to go. I'm going to take it there. Just being around like-minded people. Like when we go and we have tea time, the Westerville Creative Tea Time, there's a lot of power in that. Like yeah. you just, you know, finding like-mindedness and, and collaborating in that way too. So, I mean, but it's, that's, yeah, that's where you become less libertarian, Chris. You realize <laughs> that.
1: <laughs> hey, Maybe <remember> these Democrats <laughs> and Republicans do nothing,
2: nothing. nothing is done on its own it's true that there's a team of people that always feed into man he's
1: getting me so yeah like it is like i appreciate you coming on the show man and yeah you're you're hitting the nail on the head yeah for sure you're hitting the nail on the head that i think the take home for this guys is that trying to build a recording studio a successful career trying to join that six-figure club that's how, how you want to say it is one thing if you're doing it by yourself trying to find a community of people and that doesn't necessarily mean business partners it might, but Like, I definitely guarantee you, it's like a fly on my glasses. What is happening here? Ah, ah, ah. We have like one gnat that lives in this office that I cannot kill no matter how hard I try. But yeah, so this idea of like having people with you doesn't necessarily mean business partners, though it might, but having people that like make you healthier, I think that is, and that make you better, I think is a huge piece of this. And I know like you're a piece of that puzzle for me of like hanging out with you and Brandon and... Andy.
2: And you are a piece of that puzzle for me. Oh,
1: oh man. Well, I love you brother. And it's, (laughs) I was so pumped when you moved back Back to Westerville.
2: We've got a good thing going on here. So any of you out there looking for a a place to relocate, Westerville, baby, come join our tea party.
1: (laughs) Yeah. it's super affordable and, for some reason, amazing people keep moving back. Oh, that's the weird part, is it's people from Westerville that leave and then come back it's, home it's, it's a lot. A
2: great, it, we, we've said it, and we'll say it again. It's the most extraordinary normal place on the planet.
1: John, thanks for coming on the yeah, show. Thanks, thanks for, for having for me. dropping some wisdom bombs on us. You know what I like about this? We
2: don't have to shake hands, because no one can see this.
1: I know, right. We're John and <laughs> I are fellow germaphobes, and we're both struggling with what that means for our own sanity. Kindred spirits, you and I.
2: Yes. Awesome. All right, man.
1: All right. Well, thanks. Have a good one. All right. Bye.
0: <laughs> bye. So, that is it for this episode of the Six Figure Home Studio podcast. Quick correction to Chris Graham, who mentioned multiple times that I was in Thailand with my wife. We're actually in Vietnam. And if you listen to the intro or outro of the last episode, I'm in Phu Quoc this week, which is a small island in Vietnam just south of the Cambodian coastline. And uh, it has been absolutely incredible here. And if you've been following me on Instagram and seen my stories, you've seen probably some of the most amazing sunsets ever. I don't think I've ever seen sunsets like this. Anyways, back to the episode. It's really easy to listen to this episode and think, ah, what does this guy know about me running a studio? He's got a rap career from years ago. He has a big company with dozens of employees that sold to Disney for $500 million. What can he teach me about running a recording studio? And I think it's really easy to look at all the things that don't apply to you specifically. If anything, if you did not take away anything from this episode, I want you to at least think about this. Look at who he surrounded himself with and look who he mentioned the entire time was the people that helped him get to where he is, both with his rap career and both with Maker. And as lone wolves, as audio people, we have a tendency to isolate ourselves. This is not good mentally. It's not good emotionally. It's not good for our businesses. In no way does isolating yourself help our business grow. I definitely have not done what I've done alone. I think if you've watched my webinar uh, that thousands of people have gone through, I mentioned that I had a mentor that helped change my mindset. And I've had tons of mentors along the way. I've had friends that have helped shape my business along the way. And I think one of the cool things about the way our Facebook community, specifically in our Slack community, if you're a profitable producer course student, I think the way our community works is it is so much easier to collaborate and form lasting relationships with people now than it has ever been before in the audio industry. And I really believe that one of the interesting business models that will probably start to flourish is more and more collaborative studios or co-op type studios. If you go back to episode 27 of the podcast, where he interviewed Matt Boudreau of Working Class Audio, that was one of his big shifts is when he shifted to a co-working style studio, he had people to collaborate with. He had shared expenses with people. It was a much more healthy environment than when he was trying to rent a big studio. And incur a lot of debt, uh, and had high overhead. So there's there's a lot of benefits, not just monetarily, but emotionally and creatively, to collaborate with other people. And uh, I mentioned that we are starting another Ac- accountability accelerator boot camp with the Profitable Producer course. That's a mouthful. I can't. That's really hard to say. But uh, AAB with the PPC students. I'm just going to use letters now. One of the coolest things, the biggest takeaways that they have when they complete that program, that eight week program, is that they come away with a mastermind group that they then have forever or as long as they stay together. Um, it's It varies from group to group, but I still have groups from wha- way back with AAB1 from 2017 that are still meeting regularly for their mastermind meetups. And if it looks like a mastermind or whether it's people you're actually working with together in a studio location, whether it's a multi-room facility or you're sharing a space for working on your business, which we talk about in the podcast all the time, working on your business versus working in your business, Working in your business is collaborating in a studio. Working on your business is maybe collaborating in an office space and working on systems of your business. Whatever it looks like, find people to surround yourself with so that you are not alone in this world and you will be better off for it. I can almost guarantee it, but then there's always the chance that you pick the wrong people to be around, which can also be toxic. But maybe Chris and I will have an episode in the future on finding great people to surround yourself with. Before I go here, I wanted to mention that FilePass we just had, as of two days ago, we just launched client uploads, a major feature where all you have to do is send a link to your client and they can upload files straight to your project. Super, super easy way to collect files if you are a recording engineer or a mixing engineer and you're trying to collect large session files or if you're a mastering engineer and you're trying to get WAV files from your clients so that you can master them. It is the easiest way to collect files from clients because the, the files never expire. They don't have to have an account or have to download any app. In order to upload files to you, it is completely a branded experience, meaning your logo is on the page. It's not like WeTransfer where there's just a bunch of ads on the page. <laughs> it's a much more professional experience. Another feature we launched is accelerated uploads. And this feature means that the further you are from our servers, the faster your upload speeds are going to be improved. And I we tested this. I was in uh, Thailand at the time. And we tested a 353 megabyte WAV file. And we tried it without accelerated uploads on. We were testing this and it took 81 seconds to upload then we turned on the accelerated uploads feature and it took 42 seconds to upload so nearly twice as fast and uh, I think if you're right next to our servers you're not going to experience much of a boost but if you are sending links for your clients to upload files to our servers they may be all over the world so it's just making that so much easier and finally one more big feature that we updated is indestructible uploads meaning if you're in the middle of uploading a file especially a huge file, say 20 gigs, and it fails halfway through. Maybe your connection's lost, maybe you close your laptop, maybe your computer went to sleep, or your connection's just terrible. As soon as you get back on the internet, as soon as your con- your computer reconnects, it will resume right back where it left off. And uh, I also got to test this thoroughly in Cambodia with really sketchy internet, really slow internet, uploaded a, like a 20 gig file to file pass. And it took all day because the internet was terrible. However, I changed locations multiple times. I had my laptop open and closed multiple times as I was moving around throughout the day and had no issues with it uh, resuming right where it left off. So if you want those features, go sign up for our pro plan at filepass.com and you'll get a 14-day free trial as well as a 30-day money-back guarantee. So that's it for this episode. Next week's episode is not done yet. Uh, I think I'm actually responsible for that episode. So you will have a solo episode with me of some sort. I'm not sure exactly which episode I'm going to do yet. I have a few different ideas. So stay tuned next week, bright and early, 6 a.m. for episode 120. Until next time, thank you so much for listening and happy hustling.